1: i've been thinking about lately basically i I just encountered this two times very recently which Mm -hmm. was uh a movie that had an aesthetic choice in it just just some minor like production detail Mm -hmm. essentially that ended up becoming incredibly influential because of video games
2: so it was so yeah, weird, man.
1: It. The first one was this piece of shit movie called uh, split second, which mm, is right. um a Rudger Hauer early, early 90s or late 80s Blade Runner ripoff where oh, this he's is a, promising. a he's a detective in a future city who's uh hunting down a serial killer, and the is big the twist of, of the or? movie is that the serial killer is a xenomorph. And I just imagine this, like, hag screenwriter. Dude, what if it was Blade Runner, but then
2: halfway through the movie, it turned into Alien.
1: Exactly. (laughs) I'm just going (laughs) to smash these two Ridley Scott movies together and call it a day. Oh, my gosh. It was probably Ridley
2: Scott himself who wrote that.
1: The thing about it, though, is Rudger Hauer's character in it, he has this, like, weird high and tight haircut Mm-hmm. Uh, with like like a just a blonde buzz cut, and he has these really weird glasses that are dark mirrored lenses, and they're super close to his they're they're like super close together mm-hmm. at the bridge of his nose mm-hmm. and there were literally hundreds of characters. In anime and video games, who oh, look exactly yeah. like him, who are yeah. modeled off of him. Yeah. Like, I think the most famous one is uh, Batu from Ghost in the Shell. Ghost in the in Shell.
2: Shell, yep. Like, mm-hmm. the Major's
1: partner. Mm-hmm. It totally like Rudger Hauer out of split yep. second. Wow. And so it's just so funny that this shitty little movie <laughs> that was just so made influential, total hack work is, yeah, this aesthetic touchstone. <laughs>
2: oh, wow.
1: For decades now. That's
2: amazing.
1: And then the other one was uh, this movie Dagon, which was uh, like a Stuart Gordon early 2000s. I think it's from mm-hmm. like 2001. It's one of his HP Lovecraft movies. And it's Ooh. it's pretty bad. I mean, it's typical Stuart Gordon. It has a bunch of big ideas and some like really weird sexual shit in it. But at Ooh. the same time, it's also just cheap and kind of thrown together. But the thing about it is uh, it's... Based on the H.P. Lovecraft story, I think the shadow at Innismouth. So it's like a creepy New England seaside town. Mm-hmm. But they had a, uh, they had a uh, tax break. His producer, Brian mm. Usna, was filming a bunch of movies in Spain. Yeah. So instead, it's a bunch of creepy, cloaked Lovecraftian cult members who are all speaking Spanish for all no right. discernible reason. That's and I interesting. realized, oh, shit this is resident evil four yeah resident evil yeah. four completely took the like look and concept of this movie which was really only done for tax shelter purposes oh my gosh and made wow. like one of the best video games ever when you see it you're you're like oh my god this is such a bizarrely influential little piece <laughs> of shit movie you know
2: if only they'd yeah. known they influenced uh, so many other games so many other pieces of uh, entertainment there
1: but uh, speaking of something that is influential and actually good, yeah, The Sopranos, episode yeah, two of season one, 46 long.
2: <laughs> Just wanted to give a good shout out to the, uh, to the listeners. Welcome to Goat Season. This is a podcast about the greatest individual seasons of television of all time, their most memorable episodes, and their creative teams, both in front of and behind the camera. I'm your co-host, Phil Mitchell, and along with uh, Alex Sanessi.
1: How are you doing today, man? Not bad, man. Not bad. I like that you give a shout out in the form of an introduction. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Like, I'm going to shout all of you out by explaining why you're here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, What were your feelings about the episode, man?
2: It's a solid second episode. It's a solid second episode. I think it does a very good job continuing the story. I think it does a very good job further world building, um, filling in some gaps that, you know, maybe had been left uh, incomplete. But I think, yeah, overall, I think it's a a good um, launch. It's a good launching pad for that four story, that four episode arc um, that starts the first season. Yeah. How about yourself?
1: Yeah. It's, it's definitely a setup episode. Um, Mm -hmm. Something I was struck by watching it. So you have a bunch of changes from the way that the pilot was produced. Like the pilot was pretty much shot entirely on location in Jersey, And then as of the second episode, you know, they knew they were up and running. They had an episode order. So they built sets at uh, Silver Cup Studios in mm-hmm. Queens, New York. And so immediately I was struck in the second episode by like, oh, the Sopranos house is a set now. And yeah. in this episode especially, it really looks yeah. like a set. Mm-hmm. And Livia's house as well is very obviously a set. Mm-hmm. They hired this guy, uh, Dan Addius to direct it. And he's a real like TV veteran. He's shot everything, sitcoms, comedies, mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff. And I wonder if kind of the strategy with this episode was to say to the HBO execs, look, we know this series is really expensive. We're trying to make something more cinematic than has ever been done on television before. And I know that HBO was nervous about the expense of this show. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if this episode was kind of them trying to say, we can shoot on a normal-ish TV schedule and bring something in at a reasonable budget. Because this episode to me felt a lot more like just, just more like a sitcom or more like yeah. a traditional TV episode yeah. than The Sopranos usually does. I felt like, like you said, it, it was a good episode for setup. It it gets a, the ball rolling on a lot of plot stuff that'll mm-hmm. be in the next couple episodes. But it uh, tone wise, it it felt to me like they were really pulling back from sort of the scope of the pilot and trying sure. to do something something a little uh, bit more, more conventional. Scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, more conventional too for sure.
2: It starts off continuing the internal soprano family conflict and that just kind of escalates when Christopher boosts um, some electronics that actually happen to be uncle junior's product.
1: Right, right, but before the truck heist even. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, there's the cold open. I almost want to cover that. We do. I almost want to talk about that separately because it's such a great (laughs) scene. Yeah, we will definitely get to that for certain. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Um, We'll come back to that. Absolutely. Um, And then uh, another thread line that has also continued is Tony's continued therapy with Dr. Melfi. He has continued to experience stress and panic attacks. And at the same time that he's experiencing the increase in anxiety uh, this is mostly due to the fact that Livia is deteriorating um, and she's uh, showing signs and symptoms of Alzheimer's, dementia. Big Pussy and Polly Walnuts to go on a fetch quest, essentially. Um, and then Christopher... <laughs> a very
1: Italian-American fetch quest. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and I
2: think that's a great discussion as well, um, just the way that the show brought that to the forefront in a in a humorous fashion. Yeah. Um, and then also I think there's a, the, the plot line with Christopher and his decision as to whether or not he's going to continue to be like a wild card, someone who's unpredictable or whether he's going to kind of buckle down and, and take things a little bit more seriously. Yeah. Um, and they yeah.
1: introduced Brandon Falone in <laughs> this episode to act as sort of like a reflection of him and also a foil to yeah. him so that you have a character who's even more of a loose cannon, who's really on the outs with everybody. The funny thing is, man, like I feel like Brandon was such a memorable character that I remembered him being in a lot more of season one than he actually is. (laughs) He's really
2: only in two episodes. He's only in two episodes.
1: (laughs) And yet I I thought the actor who played him, um, Anthony DeSantos, I believe, Mm -hmm. he just gave such a strong impression so quickly. And I thought the character was so well written. He was Mm -hmm. so specific again. You just immediately feel like this guy is part of the group part of the crew and he's going to be around for a while right and it really doesn't telegraph doesn't in my opinion that, yeah that he's gonna die that quickly yeah. you know you might have thought oh yeah he'll get taken out eventually because he's just he's just too much can, of an eh? idiot yeah yeah but you didn't expect it that fast
2: i was yeah. also i was also thinking in some ways this episode made me think uh that the sopranos is in some ways reverse spider-man and so you know how spider-man in the comic just hold on hear me out here just hear me out okay okay in the comics spider-man is always trying to balance saving new york city and also dealing with aunt may like he's got to go pick up some milk he's got to go do something domestic and this is exactly what tony soprano is doing in this episode (laughs) except instead of being a superhero he's a an atrocious person right he is trying I, to just, balance his relationship with Livia, take care of his mother, <laughs> and at the same time, run a mob organization.
1: I think I I'm really right on this. I really appreciate the idea that you're... you're planting here that aunt may is actually taking this horrible psychological toll on peter parker like the pressure of her existence and her just being such a like incredibly vulnerable old woman (laughs) is just like putting such stress on this dude that that's the entire like driving force of the spider-man arc
2: (laughs) yeah i stand by that that's my hot take for the day
1: I I like it. Yeah, so uh, to get back to the cold open, man, this is so weird, dude. Mm. They never do this again. Mm -hmm. And I agree, the scene's really funny. I like the scene a lot. Yeah. It feels so weird to have Mm -hmm. a Sopranos episode not start with that theme song. I Mm -hmm. mean, at the time, of course, nobody knew, but like looking back on it, having watched the whole series multiple times, it's so strange. I mean, It's amazing how essential that opening credit sequence really was to sort of set the table, the mood, and allow episodes to sort of open slowly or on Mm -hmm. kind of an unusual scene that didn't have a lot of conflict. They do that a lot. Mm -hmm. And to just cold open on the guys just breaking balls Mm -hmm. in in the back room at uh, Bada Bing Mm -hmm. feels so odd to me. But yeah, I mean, like I guess something we could get into that is related to that is the opening credits, the the opening titles. We didn't really talk about that last time.
2: It's an interesting song. It's a it's a it's a good choice, I thought. It's a it, an interesting blues rock song, and I think it's written and performed by A Three Alabama Three. I think is the name of the band.
1: I think they're like a I think they're like one of those UK mm-hmm. uh, producer outfits mm-hmm. that was taking sort of blues rock type songs and sort of chopping them up with Mm -hmm. electronic music like it's it's okay it's it's just a few steps away from something like diamonds and guns though you know you Mm -hmm. can see how it like it's a slippery slope there yeah you know it's so
2: weird too because i went and i looked at the wikipedia entry for that song and someone had described it as a propulsive hip-hop beat and I was like, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It's not a hip hop song, not at all.
1: I mean, maybe it was like a, an old, older white dude in 1999's idea of a hip hop song. You know, right. it has that kind of vibe. It's like very like boomer intro to rap kind of right. music. <laughs> it's like as long as it has a white dude talking about shotguns, in mm-hmm. it like, that's how you I know get down. Oh yeah, gosh. it's just. I, I really do still love the whole opening credit scene so much. It's mm-hmm. one of the few that I still usually watch, as opposed to skipping, mm-hmm. even in you know show, uh, episodes I've seen many times. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just so gets you in the the environment, the atmosphere, the show, the headspace of it. I think it was kind of revolutionary too for prestige TV because to me it's it seems like the template for so many opening credit sequences in shows over the next decade you got reminded me
2: a lot of the office
1: oh sure yeah. yeah yeah and just that like 2 minute long opening credit sequence that might have like the main character shot kind of obliquely at most but mm-hmm. not anyone else in the cast you know they don't have people pop up when their credit comes up it's just giving you sort of world building of yeah. the the aesthetic in which the show will take place it's so well edited together. I it, for me, anytime I see that HBO Entertainment logo come up, the one with the uh, the static the, static, in the background yeah. <laughs> that doesn't exist anymore, right. you know, that's a total non sequitur now. Right. <laughs> People are gonna watch that in the coming years and be like, "What? What the hell what is was this? <laughs> yeah, this is gray snow in the background. Anytime I see that logo now, though, I just I just have this this. Sense memory trigger that I'm about to see the Sopranos. Opening mm-hmm. credits for any other show, any other movie. It's just like Pavlovian at this mm-hmm. point, and I, I get that little, you know, like feeling of joy of oh, I'm about to watch an episode of one of my favorite shows of all time. You yeah, know? it carries that goodwill over. It's very effective, and it's very odd to see it in this episode, not at the start.
2: I thought the cold open worked. I mean, it's a, a, a great reintroduction to the characters and to Tony's crew. Like we had already seen all of them before and met all of them before, but it does a great job, I think, of characterizing each individual who's a part of that scene. Like you have Christopher who looks ridiculous in his tracksuit and he's (laughs) pumping iron and Big Pussy is reading a newspaper. He's just looking all types of erudite You've got Paulie, And I think Pauly is that's definitely my favorite moment there when he cracks the joke about Christopher's mom and then looks to Silvio Dante and then repeats the joke. Like, he, he can't help himself. There's such a childlike glee in Sirico's performance there. It's so there great.
1: Is, I love that he repeats it in the exact same cadence, yes. the same delivery. He's yes. like, that was so good. I could just I gotta say it again. copy it right now. It's beautiful, yeah. Uh,
2: and I think yeah, but, and then uh, Silvio Dante is also there with the the Pacino, the Pacino he, reference. He,
1: he's just like an amazing piece of art direction. You can just stick him in the background of any mm-hmm. shot. And it's like, oh, this is some mobbed up shit now. Absolutely.
2: You know? Yeah. <laughs> Legitimizes everything, <laughs>
1: that guy. But it's really uh not even a reintroduction for Polly Walnuts, I feel like. I mean he right. e- Pauly barely had lines in the pilot he says like a few things and you really got the impression at that point that he was this sort of upgraded background actor where they were like we're gonna throw you in various scenes but we don't know if we're really gonna use you for any sort of dramatic lifting any sort of Mm -hmm. acting Mm -hmm. and then immediately you see in this episode he's just front and center he's the most prominent member of the crew really yeah and the show just keeps giving him more and more material and he keeps knocking it out of the park
2: it's awesome every time he's on screen i i'm en- i'm enjoying it i'm there for yes. it hands down he's yeah
1: so great one of the most authentic members of the cast we might say uh, i think he was arrested something like 28 times yeah. for racketeering robbery this guy was, other.
2: he was the real deal man
1: yeah yeah and they they wrote a lot of his background into the show him mm-hmm. being in the army and then in prison he called it college usually right. i've been to college <laughs> but uh apparently that's that's why he keeps his hands out in front of him constantly too he mm. said that was like a self-defensive thing he picked up uh wow. being in jail I mean he's he's just such a particular character. You've never seen anyone like him in television or or on film really. It's just it's so wonderful to like get to dive deeper into this character who might just be comic relief on the fringes of something else. Instead right. he's going to be you know he's going to have this interior life. He's going to be part of like the most dramatic arc of the season. Mm-hmm. It's it's so awesome.
2: He had originally auditioned for the role of Uncle June. Is that right?
1: Yeah. In mm-hmm. fact, Junior was his nickname when oh. he was involved in organized crime. Although oh, I think wow. that was a coincidence because okay. David Chase also had an Uncle Junior who he was sort of basing his character on. Okay. That guy actually is in the pilot in a scene with Uncle Junior, he's like right across from him. And for that one scene, you're like, Uncle Jude, he's got a twin just for the scene. It's super (laughs) weird.
2: So he had auditioned for the role of Uncle June. And then I believe, was it Chase who just wrote Sirico the role essentially just created the role for him?
1: I think so. I Mm -hmm. think he probably hadn't come up with something so specific in the pilot. And then just for the second episode, he started building off Sirico and and his uh, very idiosyncratic
2: persona. I think along with Sirico, like do you also want to talk about Vincent Pastore? Oh, sure. I think it's interesting and I think you and I talked about this before, but the idea that a lot of these cast members knew each other from previous uh, films, had worked together on previous films. And so Sirico and Vincent Pastore, who plays a big pussy, had met each other on Goodfellows. Excuse me, Goodfellas. I don't know why. Good I said Goodfellas, Goodfellas, Goodfellas. Who's come yeah. on now? <laughs> no, so they had <laughs> met each other on Goodfellas.
1: Oh, so they didn't meet on the uh, 18th century English period drama Goodfellas. Goodfellas. Don't
2: besmirch that show starring Julie Andrews and Sean Bean. Of yeah. course, there you go. Mm-hmm. Two of the greatest of all.
0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: All time. But yeah, I think uh, Pastore, he had just, he had worked in the Navy um, and then he had transitioned to acting and his specialty, like his forte is just working mafioso types. Like that is what he... Kind of well, like yeah, focused.
1: I mean, come on. Right. You know, yeah, this guy's going to get typecast. Come on. <laughs> right. His face looks like <laughs> a cinder block, you know? <laughs> but uh yeah that that was something a lot of the uh, cast members have said is that they showed up for this and immediately like lunch breaks time away from set everyone was hanging out it felt like they were all family immediately uh, a lot of them did know each other before this a lot of them had worked a lot of them too just knew each other from the new york independent film scene i mean the the Casting was just so New York centric. They really wanted to have all the accents line up and stuff. And and yeah, Mm -hmm. everyone said they had such a sense of community. And I can tell you from my experience on TV shows, that is not how it usually goes. Right? Like it is very much a job, and people are oftentimes like very much in their own little silos, where Mm -hmm. it's like talent doesn't hang out with crew and Mm -hmm. bullshit like that. Right. uh, it seemed like with this show, it, it was just such a familial atmosphere from the start, which is interesting too, because uh, that's one of the big themes of the show is how these characters, these people, th- their culture is their lifeblood. You know, right. It's so impactful upon their identity, the Italian-American experience. They, they relate to people through that so much. Mm-hmm. And anyone outside of that, they're just going to have a little more difficulty dealing with you know Mm -hmm. from the outset i think the show does a really interesting job too of showing how culture can sort of trap you in particular modes of thinking in particular types of behavior not just in the mob but generally in the way that these guys relate to women you know Mm -hmm. the the relationships they have with their mothers and their Mm. wives and their gumas it's all slightly broken in, in a way where they just won't be able to shift out of these modes of behavior. So I think Chase is really commenting on how culture can entrap you as well and how these things that they feel make them relate to each other so much are kind of meaningless. It's like, oh, we're all from Italy? Like what part of Italy that you've never Mm -hmm. visited before? You know, Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. But uh, it's interesting to see how it reflected into the making of the show too and everybody actually grew really close because of that.
2: Yeah. I'm going to switch gears here because I was wondering, yeah. in terms of overall second episodes, and um, we yeah. talked about how it does further world building, um, how it furthers the story. What do you think about it just in terms of if you compare it to other second episodes from other television shows?
1: Well, I was thinking about this because second episodes, I would say generally are bad. You look at most shows, whether they be Prestige or Network or whatever, the problem is, Your second episode, you basically have to restate the entire idea of the pilot in a format of a regular episode, you know? And maybe Mm -hmm. with a more serialized prestige show, that might not be the case quite as much, Mm -hmm. but it's still like the pilot you have this chunk of time you have a much longer shooting schedule to just do this one episode as well as you can and then you come back and you're immediately on a shorter schedule you're already doing pre-production on episode three while you're working on two it's like immediately your attention is divided you have less time and you have to sort of restate everything and kickstart possibly like the story arc for the whole rest of the season so right you know, I, I think a lot of second episodes are really clumsy because of that. I think th- this second episode is better than some because it uh, basically lowers the stakes and just focuses more on developing, developing the story. I think it's a solid second episode. I think it it still has some of those tonal inconsistencies that you would see a lot of the times. It just doesn't trip over itself trying to restate the pilot so much. Right. The funny thing is now I think the current paradigm of second episodes is totally different. Like if you look at Netflix shows, episode two is usually incredible. Episode yeah. two is usually where they blow it out. They give you some really spectacular scene or some big performance moments. Because Who you,
2: Like who's coming to mind right there when you're talking about that?
1: Oh, well, like uh, the Netflix Daredevil show, episode mm-hmm. two was like the really big, big like one take fight scene and it was just mm. a really like exciting episode overall or like uh Queen's Gambit recently the second episode was really where it's like okay Anya Taylor-Joy is taking this character and launching like her own internal conflicts also starting on the like real chess career and I've just found that in general oh yeah like uh, House of Cards too oh, yeah, the second right. episode was a big <laughs> big, up, uh, big upgrade yeah yeah Um, And the reason they do that is because algorithmically streaming uh, networks know that If you watch three episodes of something, you'll probably finish it. You have a much, much higher chance to finish it if you watch three. So they make the second episode really good. So you'll go right on to the third.
2: What I think is really interesting is the fact that this is like the probably the first time that we've seen a four-episode story arc in a television series because I can't think of any television show prior to The Sopranos that offered you a mini story within the first season or within any season, honestly. Just a from episode one, the pilot, all the way to the fourth episode. Um, the Sopranos is working this arc, and I can't think of any other show that was um, bringing that to the table.
1: Back then, especially, it must have seemed so kind of strange exciting right exciting and new and unusual mm-hmm. yeah because uh, you know shows had had experimentation with serialized storytelling and of course you've always got soap operas as like the classic example right but to have something that's a unit of story that only exists for four episodes that really sort of builds and crescendos and has a bunch of character and conflict all come to a head within that and then to proceed on from there, that is extremely unusual. Right. And I think it it shows again, like Chases, he's thinking in more uh, more in terms of a feature structure. He's mm-hmm. thinking in terms of a film structure where you would tell a big story with a lot of incident over three or four acts, right. essentially. Right. Yeah. And then he had to reset and come up with new episodes after that. <laughs>
2: yeah. So- I'm gonna go back to my reverse Spider-Man metaphor. Okay. Do we think mm-hmm. that the main conflict is between Tony and Uncle June, or is the main conflict between Tony and Livia?
1: Oh yeah, it's Livia all the way. Okay. She is okay. she is his Norman Osborne for she... sure. <laughs> okay, I see. So you're apparently in this, this metaphor, well. Aunt May is also Norman Osborne. <laughs> <laughs> Slash Doc Ock. I don't know. She's uh <laughs> actually you know what that's probably a comic right now you know since they've got like <laughs> Gwenpool. oh that's and, right you know yeah. gwenham and shit Man. like that oh my god probably next they're gonna have uh
2: dr osborne or something like that yeah yeah,
1: yeah exactly
2: Ugh. the green doctor <laughs> dr goblin
1: <laughs> dr goblin
2: all right i'm gonna stop <laughs>
1: yeah i mean livia is is just so clearly the thing that can bring tony to his knees you know Mm -hmm. she's even even in this episode where she's so frail seeming you know she's burning the mushrooms she's running over her best friend with the car (laughs) oh yeah a great moment what a great stunt what a great wonderful like stunt to depict
2: Mm-hmm.
1: injury to the elderly. <laughs> I really appreciate that they they went for it, you know, oh, with the uh, production value there. It did not hold back. Yeah, yeah. She, even with all of that said, I think she remains the most antagonistic force on him. She's yeah. the one who's uh, giving him the most trouble.
2: Which is so funny because I, I, she is the person giving him the most trouble. And yet the show is, I don't want to say, t- is it, 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 it's projecting Uncle Junior as being, Person that you should look out for, whereas and that that might be so, that is true to a certain extent. Like you have to watch out for Uncle Junior, but the person who was really going to you know stab you in the back and and, and you know and twist the blade is his mom. Um,
1: <laughs> she's yeah, an expert at that.
2: She sure. really is. It's incredible, and I think that's such a great performance by Nancy
1: Marchand. Yeah, she's amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean. Someone asked David Chase if he could go back and do it again, would he have cast someone else just knowing that she was going to pass away so early in the show and he would have to retool the main conflict of the whole series? And he said, There was no one else. You mm-hmm. know, there was no wow. one else who embodied this character the way that she did. Mm-hmm. And so he was like, that's, that's just how it had to be. I mean, she's incredible. She nails every time she fake cries into one of her <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> heavily used tissues. Yes. <laughs> like those tissues have seen. <laughs> Better days. <laughs> they, they've been through multiple tours of duty, if they you know have. what I mean.
2: <laughs> so she had a career working in theater, Nancy Marchand. She had a career working in theater predominantly before transitioning to working in TV in films, if I'm remembering this yeah, correctly.
1: She was on the um she was on like a Mary Tyler Moore spinoff. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was that called? It was called Lou Grant. Lou Grant, yeah. Mm-hmm. I never watched that. But uh I, I know that she was well known from that, but I don't think she had worked in a really visible way in a wild yeah. Uh, the only thing I had really seen her in, aside from The Sopranos, was she was Leslie Nielsen's police chief in The, the Naked, Naked Gun. Gun movies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. she was very good as like mm-hmm. the archetypal, uh, archetypal, like fussy <laughs> woman who can't stand all this buffoonery. You
2: know, <laughs> I think by that time she had already won four Emmys. By that wow. point, yeah, yeah. So she had won four Emmys for her work on Lou Grant by the time The Naked Gun comes out, she's already a a very celebrated television
1: actress. It's pretty amazing to cap off an already huge career with this just indelible role Mm -hmm. in a show that changed everything. Mm -hmm. And I'm sad that we didn't, you know, get more of her across like the full arc of this series, but uh, she just left such an impression too, man. It's incredible. I guess someone else we could talk about real quick is... uh, the director of photography for the episode uh alex Sakharov, he actually shot the first seven episodes he shot basically half the season including the pilot and including this episode and even though like i was saying i felt like in this episode the sets looked a little bit more like sets i still thought it had a lot of really cool wide angle establishing shots Mm -hmm. especially uh when they're sort of dealing with the trucking or outside of uh, the Bada Bing, he, uh, he shoots that stuff really well. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to see a DP, like not just film the pilot, but go through and shoot the entire show. Uh, That's kind of unusual these days. Normally what would happen on a series now is uh, your DP would shoot the pilot and they would get somebody, more from sort of the feature world to come in and just film that and really establish a look. Mm -hmm. And then they wouldn't shoot any other episodes of the Mm -hmm. show. It's a sweet deal for them because they actually get residuals on every episode just for establishing the show's look. Yeah, But to have him like shoot a full half of the season, that's so interesting to me. It seemed like Chase decided on his people and... Wanted them to see it through and right. give give a real consistency right. to to the show, so okay. yeah, it, it is unusual to have that kind of consistency across a season, and I think it's definitely to to the show's strength because uh, they were establishing a new, much more cinematic visual language mm-hmm. for a show than had really ever been done before. Did he go on to do anything else? He did. Uh, he shot a lot of HBO shows and in the process became an episode director as well. He directed some really big episodes of game of Thrones and mm. now he's, uh, one of Netflix's go-to directors. Okay. It seems he's okay. directed the witcher and house of cards. And I mean, a bunch of stuff. Wow. Yeah. So you said, Dan Adius,
2: did we talk about Adius already?
1: A little bit, you know, yeah. how uh, kind of a TV veteran brought on potentially to try and bring in the show on schedule and under budget, you know. I think okay. he does, I, I don't know. I I feel like he may have been the main issue with this episode in terms of its tone, in terms of its its style from mm-hmm. scene to scene. Just feeling a little more like regular TV. Okay, okay.
2: By this point, like by the end of the episode what would you say yeah what would you say that the episode is kind of put to the forefront in terms of like themes overall
1: well culture we were talking about a little bit that's that's a big one uh, mm-hmm. which brings us back to the other scene that we didn't really cover the the starbucks scene oh, which yeah. is Hilarious. one of my favorite scenes it's such a great from the scene. whole show such it's, a great scene
2: well cuz there's incredible. two of them there's two different is it i mean are we talking about them both together because they go to basically a starbucks twice um it's
1: weird isn't it so they yeah. they cut back to it and it almost seems like they split the scene up and put half of it later in the episode mm-hmm. uh maybe for pacing or something
2: mm-hmm.
1: but uh yeah i mean both parts of it are just incredible but especially like polly Walnut stealing the french press he is so <laughs> in- aggrieved
2: that poor guy oh my gosh <laughs> But I think it's so, the thing that I think is also funny about that scene is that uh, Big Pussy is just kind of like, what, oh, again with the rape of the culture? And then he just walks away. Like he's just not buying any of Pauly's grievances and his up his, his his distaste for the appropriation. He's not having any of it.
1: It gives you the impression that every every grievance that Polly has, he has aired hundreds of times right. to these guys. You know, right.
2: they're so used to his. He's just shit. not having. He's just like, okay, this is just Pauly. All right, let's <laughs> yeah. just let's get yeah. it over with, man. Let's leave the Starbucks.
1: It's so funny though.
2: I also thought. I mean, I'm I'm circling back to the the cult open. But one of the things that we didn't talk about is the idea that the mob is in decline. And that's something that the cold open really stamps pretty heavily. This idea that gangsters, that way of life, that is coming to an end, that's coming to a close. And that I think, I I think when the pilot, um, when it opens on Tony walking down and getting the newspaper from the driveway and he talks about how he feels as though he, has missed out on something because he came in at the end. I had interpreted that as sort of like an economic anxiety, which a lot of people are, you know, um, have experienced over the last decade or so. You maybe for the last thirty years. But the cold open almost makes it explicit that it's about the decline and the death of the mafia because of, you know, law enforcement tapping down on them.
1: They they hit the the RICO charges really hard in that opening scene right. and talk about how there's this power vacuum at the top and I think part of that is to set up the main conflict between Tony and Junior over the the course of the season and it doesn't get into it but something that something that it's sort of obliquely talking about is how there are no longer organized power structures and Mm -hmm. the power structures that do come up in in the mob and especially in this show they're they're basically more subjective they're Mm. they're essentially the power structures are created based on the force of the personality of the people getting the work done right you know like tony is not the highest ranked member of this crew or this family, but he's the guy who runs things and he's, he's the, the de facto guy who leader. decides. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And he decides who becomes the boss mm-hmm. and it's like the power structure that they're creating doesn't really have anything to do with
2: seniority, running shit
1: day to day Yeah, or, or actual seniority, exactly. Yeah. Actual power. As it relates to these guys, you know, he has his crew, he has like a solid group around him, and he can get stuff done. Right. Whereas Junior's power is more this sort of tenuous hold of him being like, Well, I deserve to be in charge right, right. now. I've been waiting long enough. I'm the next in line. Right. And that doesn't turn out to be effective, really. Not at all.
2: Not at yeah. all. I think the other thing that was interesting when they were uh, looking at the television interview is Omerta reference to Omerta and how Mm. um, law enforcement essentially broke that practice by um, charging gangsters um, bringing charges that were with with longer sentences with heavier sentences Um, so you're talking like 15 20 30 years and how that gangsters felt like that was something that they could not do Um, i think chase had said something about how the reason why the mafia started to fall apart was because of this right so a guy could do one to two years, maybe even five years in prison or in jail, but had there's no way that you could do 10, 15 years over a charge. And so it's almost like they had no choice but to flip in order to look out for themselves.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the omerta also is the code of silence. Mm-hmm. And I think while well, you can interpret that as yeah, like not ratting out, your fellow family members and, and sort of just, just not being a snitch. Uh, the Omerta, you know, I think also is a strength that the mob continues to have in the show in that they basically keep everything kind of low key and secretive and they don't, they don't flash their organized crime status in the way that gangsters did in you know previous generations you don't have that golden age where everything is really like lavish and they're they're living up these lifestyles and it's all very identifiable mm-hmm. these guys are more small time you know and, right. and they they live lives that are comparably more humble you know tony has the big house but a lot of these guys are uh not living in any kind of luxury and, yeah, and part of that sure. seems to be oh yeah yeah exactly <laughs> part of that definitely seems to be the Sense of secrecy, though, too, and keeping a low profile. You know, mm-hmm. they want the sort of plausible deniability that they don't really exist anymore.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, Christopher's place with the pull-up bar. That Such a shit. mess.
2: Such a mess. <laughs>
1: yeah. What do we think about um, Melfi? Oh man, um, I got to defer to you on this one. How how did you feel about the therapy in this episode? It's interesting.
2: Um, I think she gives Tony some pretty good. Bits to work off. Um, I think she gives him some good advice regarding his mother. Um, so I give her an A minus for this episode. That actually leads me to one of um, one of the funnier moments in the episode, which is when she tells Tony, "I know seniors that are inspired." And then he goes to see Livia, and she has a meltdown. And she has a fit, and then he repeats the line, "I know seniors that are inspired," except he's yelling it at his mom. <laughs> And it has none well, of Well she's the,
1: saying, Lord, take me now, and all yeah. this shit. It
2: has none of the pathos or empathy with which Melfi Melfi delivered it. Uh and it's just so hollow when he tries. He's, he's just it's an act of desperation when he uh, when he drops that line. It's so great. Uh
1: it is so funny to think of him like trying to take these psychological terms out of context mm-hmm. and use them against <laughs> his mother, who is this master manipulator who immediately goes straight to like high drama you know she's like acting out this operatic sort of display she of just, how she's been wronged now she, she hates up, so. her life
2: yeah so i think yeah i would say i give Melfi an a for the episode or excuse me an a, for an a- minus for the episode yeah so she's the doing brain okay. is
1: sliding down gradually it's, it's, she... i see
2: it is it is the
1: performance is degrading Just and it like. has
2: nothing to do with lorraine brocco's performance i think that she's fantastic but yeah. yeah it's more or less the decisions that melfi makes i'm just kind of like hmm. all right i don't know if i would have <laughs> done that i don't know if any therapist would have done that but okay
1: you're already seeing the uh the slippery slope she's oh yeah headed down but yeah i i think overall you know it's it's a solid episode it it is starting to build a lot of stuff, but uh, the tone is a little bit wobbly just as a result of it being such a new show and them trying to figure out how to mount such a huge production on a television schedule. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, A lot of these early season one episodes were shot in only eight days, which is pretty tight schedule even for a network show. Mm -hmm. But especially for something this ambitious, I imagine it was just a crazy workload. You know, I think think they were still figuring all that out. And the show, essentially after the first season, would never shoot on such a tight schedule or such a tight budget again. They really had enough success and enough clout coming out of that first season to basically do what they wanted for the rest of the series. But, you know, setting that aside, I still think the first season holds up it's it's so funny it's, it's got so many just indelible moments with these characters like I, I wouldn't put this episode even close to the top of the season or the series for me personally and yet still i mean that starbucks exchange is one of my it's favorite great. moments between big pussy and Polly. Yeah. so even in you know an episode that's mostly set up you still get a few moments that are are iconic is it time for
2: Name That Episode.
1: Oh, are we doing that again?
2: Oh yeah, we're doing it.
1: <laughs> all right. Ladies oh and God. gentlemen,
2: ladies and gentlemen, Name That Episode is exactly what it sounds like. It's a part of the podcast where I Philip give Alex the description of a few television episodes and then Alex's job is to name the title. I'm going to give you two at bats this time. Okay. All right. All right. Give me one second here. So, in this episode of Breaking Bad named after an aircraft No-Dose dies after being beaten to death by Tuco Salamanca, who then later kidnaps both Walter
1: and Jesse. So this is second season. Because Tuco is just barely introduced at the end of one. And you said it's the name of a plane? Mm Mm-hmm. It's 737? (sighs) oh, so close. Oh. It's not, it's not 737.
2: You are like, you are like knocking on the door.
1: Is oh, it's not 747. Yes, it is. <laughs> is it? It's 747. Really? Yep. Cause I thought it was a 737 that blows up at the mm, end of this seven, season. 747. It's man. a 747. Yeah. Dang. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay.
2: Well, you got it though.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'll give you that one. I'll give you that one. <laughs> I will give you that i do not know. I wanted to ding it, I wanted to nail it right okay. there. All right, but, uh, ah, oh, man, do you need a moment to collect yourself? So, I just remember he had that speech where he's talking about Tenerife, and he's like, that was two 747s crashing into each other, <laughs> and everyone died when he's trying to like justify, right? Himself. Oh my gosh, he yeah,
2: scene in the gymnasium. Oh, my god, yeah.
1: that yeah. was painful, brutal. Oof so good <laughs> should go back and uh, watch that i know i can't wait to watch that show again for the podcast it's gonna be great
2: all right ready for number two yeah man okay here we go in this episode of mad men sterling cooper has an election results watch party in 1960 we learned don draper's real name and what happened to him in the korean war
1: oh this is such a great episode from the end of season one uh this is Nixon v. Kennedy. Pew, 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 pew. Ah, I was two. like, is it Kennedy versus Nixon or is it Nixon versus Kennedy? I, I was like, I'm 50-50 on this. I'm going to feel so bad if I minorly mess this up again. You got it, man. Because <laughs> that's the whole point of this exercise, right. is me remembering precision. stupid, useless details precisely. Precision. Yeah. About the precision. yeah. Nice, nice. We so appreciate y'all listening. Uh, We will be back next week with a rundown of episode three, Denial, Anger, Acceptance, getting more into this mini arc for the first season and uh, talking about the continued construction of one of the best seasons of television of all time. Please remember to follow, rate, and review. You can email us questions at goatseasonpod at gmail.com. I also want to thank Janice O'Leary for our artwork josh sullivan for our intro music and battlequake for our outro see you next week